Hello, I'm Howard Miller, a contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and we welcome you to this edition, this weekly edition of The Daily Journal Podcast with Micah Star Liberty, with whom we'll be talking about what's going on in trial courts, especially state trial courts, access to justice, and our whole system of justice in California. We could not have a better person to talk about these issues that are of such concern to the bar than Micah Star Liberty. She is now the president of the Consumer Attorneys of California, following, though she is still very young, a distinguished career in the law. As part of her law practice, in 2015, she received the Street Fighter of the Year Award from the Consumer Attorneys. She has consistently gotten awards of merit, Presidential Award of Merit, the Defender of Justice Award, and she was awarded the Women's Advocate of the Year Award for her work on legislation and prosecuting numerous cases in the Me Too area. She also has worked in the public arena. She's worked at the White House. She's worked for two members of Congress. She's been a judicial extern to the United States District Judge and is a lecturer and writer on all these issues we'll be talking about. I also could not let the introduction go without mentioning that it's a great personal pleasure for me to have Micah on. Uh, Some years ago, starting in 2007 and then going through 2010, when I was on the Board of Governors and then President of the State Bar in 9 to 10, Micah, for some years, was the young lawyer representative on the then State Bar Board of Governors and a vice president of the State Bar Board of Governors. And even then, even then, it was clear that she was on the path to becoming a major force in the California legal profession. And what I've told you and so many other things that have occurred fully justified the belief that I had at that time. So it's a real pleasure to have you with us, Micah. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this podcast. You have been at the center of of what's been going on in the trial courts. Um, But even before we talk about that, we want to get people to, to see some of the things that you've done. I, I mentioned that you got the Street Fighter of the Year Award because of a, ca- a sexual molestation case that you dealt with in, in the Contra County School District. W- without violating any, any confidences, that's so much of the kind of case that plaintiff's lawyers handle and get results in. Can you talk to us generally about what, what happened there, what you learned about the problems of representation in that kind of case? Absolutely. That case um, and that client is near and dear to my heart. Um, it, it was a case where a special needs boy was um, sexually assaulted by another special needs boy in a bathroom on a school campus in West Contra Costa Unified School District. The The boy who assaulted my client had just two weeks before assaulted another student in a bathroom and got caught. And he was supposed to um, have supervision at all times. And the school just did not follow the rules. He was left unattended. My client was allowed to go to the restroom uh, at the same time that the other boy was there and the assault occurred. Um, my client at the time was 15 uh, severely autistic. He had the cognitive functioning of a five or six year old and, um, did have some, uh, you know, verbal skills, but wasn't fully verbal. 
we were able to resolve that case. You know, when you do cases like that, though, um, they're complicated because the plaintiff can't can't really testify competently. So you have to know how to um, find the very best experts who have experience in the area who can really help tell the victim's story, um, you know, as best we're able to and, and translate it for the jury uh, and or the adjuster. I'll tell you, this this case doesn't end there, though, or, or with that award, which was so... Um, fulfilling to me because I became uh, the the client and and the client's mom are like family at this point. And unfortunately, this poor young man was sexually assaulted again. And we had to file a second lawsuit because all of the protections um, that were supposed to be in place just were not followed. Nothing was investigated. I think the district um, although well-intentioned, didn't want to dig into all of the abuse and assault that was happening. Um, so in the second case, we were about 10 days out from trial. Uh, couldn't get it resolved. And I get a call from the police department. And the Penole Police Department had arrested a man who used to work at the district during the relevant time period of the second case. He was arrested for sexually assaulting three disabled adults. He worked at a group home at the time, and he spontaneously confessed in the interview to sexually assaulting my client on school grounds at, you know, like I said, during the same time frame. So, you know, we were all reeling from this new information. We had to postpone trial, uh, amend the complaint, and, um, you know, include these additional claims. But all of this, in terms of what we're going to talk about, I mean, you talk about this example, and, and we know of others in, in the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, where there are real harms where recovery is called for, and where access to the courts and the court functioning is so significant to doing justice in the sense of obtaining a result, whatever it is, but having access to a court system that can provide a result, hold a jury trial, if the right to jury trial is available, and decide the matter. I mean, without that kind of access and without courts functioning, you would be in a very different position, uh, and everyone would be trying to help a, a client like that. Doesn't it all depend on having functioning courts in order to be able uh, to make a decision and do justice here? Absolutely. Absolutely. And unfortunately, we find ourselves right now in this moment in time um, with, with courts that aren't fully functioning, and it's um, very, very difficult for my sexual assault and sexual abuse clients um, to manage, um, you know, just day to day. Uh, I have lots of clients who go through periods of suicidal ideation because of the PTSD and the trauma they've experienced. Um, and the courts not not functioning the way they should is a real 
tax um, on not just my clients and my plaintiffs, but everyone who does any sort of work where <laughs> clients are going to have to wait for the courts to kind of get it back together um, so we can petition the courts and, and have our, our rights adjudicated. Yeah, that's, you know, we talk about this, lawyers talk about this, the effect of the courts and the effect on the legal process. But of course, we exist, lawyers exist, judges exist, courts exist uh, for the sake of clients and to resolve these disputes. And we, you know, have to keep in mind what you're saying, which is that court, uh, not having access to courts, having courts not function, results in harm, not just to lawyers, but results in harm to the clients, to the people who have been injured, who have a claim, and who are entitled to a judgment, to a decision, whether they're right or wrong. So what has been happening? Let's let's go back. We've used this. It's so important to... Let's go over what's been happening in California. COVID hits, the courts are affected, and we start with what amount to court closures, to court shutdowns. Take us through that process. What happened first in the in the February March timeline in terms of how the courts reacted to the to the COVID issues? Well, you know, simply put, the courts reacted poorly, in my opinion. I will tell you that at Consumer Attorneys of California, we were watching what was happening because we have seen um, during 9-11 courts shut down, but for a very short period of time. We have seen with wildfires, courts shut down for a very short period of time, and no one really knew what to expect um, in February. By the time we got to March, we were hearing rumblings of, of what you know, was kind of on the horizon. I think it was Contra Costa County Superior Court that was the first to shut down. And we had the the um, six Bay Area counties and the city of Berkeley issue the, the first nationwide uh, or first in the nation, rather, uh, shelter in place. I think that was the 15th or 16th of March. We We knew as an advocacy team what was coming at that point, and we immediately sprang into action. So we started lobbying the governor's office to make sure uh, the governor was going to exercise his emergency powers in a way that protected uh, litigants, people who had ongoing cases, people who were in trial at the time, um, you know, just trying to get him to allow us to help you know, wrap our arms around the problem. It took about two weeks of negotiation and in consultation with the um, chief justice and the judicial council, we were able to get the governor to issue um, an emergency order granting the chief sweeping powers with respect to the administration of the courts. Um, and we then started with getting the, the Judicial Council to focus on a couple of things that allowed us to continue to practice um, as the courts were shutting down or had shut down around the state. So we were able to obtain an emergency order that allowed for remote depositions because, as you know, the code requires uh, the deponent and the deposition officer to be in the same location. Well, we were able to to 
get the Judicial Council to suspend that rule. We were able to get the Judicial Council to allow for electronic service of um, litigation-related materials. And we were also able to get uh, an extension of deadlines with respect to statutes of limitations and statutes of repose. And by the way, I want to say, you know, you talk about what consumer attorneys have done, but from my discussions and from what's been happening, this cause of keeping the courts open and keeping functioning in the best way possible was really joined in by lawyers from bar associations all over the states. This was not a plaintiff defendant issue. My read from what happened is that this is something that the whole profession understood was important and worked together uh, because it is an issue of access and of court functioning which affects uh, everyone's obligations. And so while you did this on behalf of consumer attorneys, it really was, my sense was that it was the entire bar and the local and other bar organizations that were also supportive of, of whatever could uh, uh, could be done. That's absolutely right. And the Consumer Attorneys of California works with the California Defense Council um, lobbyist and association, and we were in lockstep with them. Um, not every bar association or even local trial lawyer association has lobbyists or a political kind of action team. CAOC does and the California Defense Council does. So, um, you know, in, in a crisis like this, you have to rely on the relationships, those political relationships that have been developing over the years to be able to get the attention of the folks in power. But this was a statewide effort. Absolutely. Um, we know that we, from our perspective, were surveying all of our members around the state. The California Defense Council did as well. We held um, town hall meetings with local bar associations, you know, telephone, telephonic town hall meetings, um, because we, we wanted to get our, our finger on the pulse of what was going on in each county. Now, here is the problem with where we are right now. Our state constitution grants all 58 counties to administer um, and administrate their uh, superior courts in independent ways. So what we really need in this moment is consistency and coordination and statewide rules, but we don't have that because it's up to each presiding judge to decide when closures will be, um, what the hour, when the clerk's office will open or not open. Um, and it's, it's leading to, for the lawyers who are trying to figure out all the different, you know, <laughs> permutations of what's going on. It's leading to a lot of stress and a lot of confusion. We have, we happen to have a, a website and a Twitter account where we will, um, we every day, uh, search for new emergency orders from all 58 counties and post them uh, because it it's just a lot to keep track of. And in today's um, legal environment, most folks practice in multiple counties, if not, you know, statewide. But the, so, the, the, the chief justice and the judicial council here were given the emergency powers and they did do what they could do. They've, they've acted here. The chief justice gave essentially authority, as I understand it, 
to the presiding judges of each county to do whatever they felt had to be done to have the courts function. Even though there was no power to order them all, she provided the power for each individual trial court to do, even though had they had to make the decision, but there was no limit under the emergency orders for what the presiding judges could do in their own counties. Right. Um, but I, I still submit that there's more that needs to be done, and we, we need a standard set of operating procedures. So there were counties that um, just completely shut down. Uh, no clerk's office open, no uh, remote hearings going on. And then there were other counties where they were continuing, uh, you know, they were up and running on, on video conferencing right away. So <clears throat> what's happening now and I don't know what the answer is, uh, and, and absolutely every presiding judge uh, needs to have input, but what's happening is we're getting a different justice system depending on the counties that the cases are filed in. But what I, the reason and I, I think that's a problem. No, the reason I asked the question was not that it's absolutely right in terms of lack of coordination, but the ju- Chief Justice and Judicial Council have done all that they could do within the existing power. I think the discussion in terms to what else, what other powers do they have to have, how else should it be organized, but within the existing authorizations that are available, uh, right. the, the Chief Justice and Judicial Council did what could be done. Right. I mean, I, I think there's uh, two, two routes. Um, legislation, uh, or a constitutional amendment, but who's got the political will for that? I mean, I don't know, um, without a an agreement to participate in kind of a statewide um, committee or, you know, uh, task force to come up with rules that can be applied across the board, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But Something needs to happen, certainly. But there is uh, there's a precedent for this in a very important area because not too long ago, the counties owned all the courthouses, and it was right. a major change when Chief Justice George and what the legislature did and the governor, essentially in moving the uh, ownership, using the broad word, of courthouses on a statewide basis, so that the, the similar problems, not similar, but other problems that were present for counties not supporting courthouses and the huge need for courthouse construction could be met on a Mm -hmm. statewide basis. So there is a precedent here for having taken what was, can broadly be called the balkanization of the ownership of the facilities, moving it Mm -hmm. to statewide authority. And you're really talking about doing the same thing in terms of procedures. But before we talk about what has to be done statewide, I'd like to ask you, because there's about what the major counties have done. I mean, one of the things that many of the major counties did, I know L.A. County did it, was to vacate the trial dates, vacate all trial dates. And now the latest order that I've been able to keep up with is there'd be not even any criminal trials in in Los Angeles County until sometime in the middle of August, let alone civil jury trials. But the first thing that was done was to vacate not only the trial dates, 
but to vacate all the procedural dates that went along with those trial dates so that all discovery and motion dates were also vacated until a new trial date was given. And then what happened is the statutory and other preliminary trial dates kicked in. Did that mm-hmm. work? Was was that the best way to deal with, with what was occurring? I, I don't think so. Um, you and I both know that trial dates get cases settled, um, e- even when they're uh, aspirational. Um, I think part of the problem is and and we're seeing this in different ways across the state. If folks want to get a case resolved, they'll get a case resolved. If folks want to produce witnesses for remote depositions, they will. If the if the perspective is delay or um, you know just cause unnecessary work. Um, especially when the courts were completely shut down, when no one could go in ex parte or file a motion to compel or whatever it is. I think that that kind of um, just kind of a clearing of the calendar um, is is problematic. There's no reason why um, dates can't be selected uh, or if if the parties, unless there's good cause, all the deadlines stay in effect. One of the things that um, there's a senator from Orange County, Tom Umberg, who's working on uh, legislation and it's kind of emergency legislation to essentially make um, all of the the three big civil emergency rules, the SOL, the remote depot and the e-service permanent. Um, And in uh, consideration of of these these three things, making sure that when um, trial dates get continued for reasons related to the pandemic, that if uh, a litigant w- would be prejudiced by a date having expired because of a COVID related reason, that they're not they haven't lost you know the opportunity to do what it is, file a summary judgment motion or whatever. Um, however, if the time has passed already, there should be no revival of, you know, some of the deadlines, particularly related to dispositive motions. Um, so we, we think uh, that that legislation is going to pass out as um, the both houses have essentially uh, decided that you know, any litig- any legislation that goes through is going to have some sort of relationship to the pandemic, that that's a priority. But talking about the dates that were connected with the trial dates, I mean, let's put the motions that may have required rulings in, in one category that required a judicial determination to move forward. But for example, there were discovery cutoff dates, and you know a lot of lawyers comply with with the with the dates that are that are present, and so right. there was a, an additional effect when all that when the trial dates were vacated by vacating all the internal other dates that led up to the trial date. It even kicked the discovery cutoff date, so there was no right. pressure in those cases for lawyers acting in good faith who felt that they had to move forward because the discovery dates were still in effect. It all got kicked off. So everyone had an excuse, essentially, to not do 
any discovery in the period when properly done discovery is purely a matter of the lawyers acting in good faith during the litigation. So was there any real reason to vacate, for example, the discovery dates? Uh, no, I can't see one. And I think the overall impact is a negative one on the litigants, particularly from a plaintiff's perspective. The plaintiffs are the ones with the burden of proof. They want to keep pushing. Um, and now, as you say, there is no pressure. But you know, and if if, if there were if, if folks were able to obtain all the information they need to prepare for a trial, there could be uh, potentially reasonable settlement discussions even during the pandemic. But uh, you know, the the damage done um, to plaintiffs and the defendants' uh, desire to to have peace uh, and have you know all rights adjudicated that doesn't shut down just because the courts do. Well, and we can talk about then moving beyond discovery uh, to motion practice. For example, when the, the dates for summary judgment were, were kicked, when the trial dates were kicked, there is a settlement virtue, not just in trial dates, but a lot of experienced mediators feel that the best time to settle a case is while a motion for summary judgment is pending, uh, when both parties can see the strength or weakness of, of summary judgment motions that have been made. And so by vacating the summary judgment dates, which were, again, were totally within the ability of the lawyers to prepare, you don't need judicial activity to prepare and respond to a motion for summary judgment. You may need it to rule on it, but certainly not to prepare. And so by removing those dates, again, it removes something totally in control of the lawyers that could have created an environment that would have been, I think, don't you, conducive to settlement? Absolutely. Absolutely. I really think it, um, you know, it's uh, maybe a little dramatic to call it a miscarriage of justice, but it feels like that when you're trying to explain, um, you know, orders like this to your clients, real folk out there who, who don't understand, especially because a lot of the litigants are, you know, frontline workers in some way. And a lot of the defendants are small businesses who've been impacted. I mean, people want to um, normalize uh, their lives during this chaotic time and not having the ability to, to resolve cases uh, or even push them forward has a real impact. Well, understandably, I mean, we can all understand this was really, I know there was a similar, there was a crisis at, at 9-11, there have been other crises that have impacted the courts. But in terms of, of the health dangers causing the shutdown, and this, really the, the courts had to respond immediately. And there, I, I don't think it, it, it's fair even to, to criticize in that sense. The, the decisions had to be made. There was no set precedent to make the decisions. But now we know. And so what's so interesting is that even though we've gone through the process and it's now months later, that even some of the courts that are now continuing to vacate trial dates in L.A., first it was June, then it goes to August, are continuing as they vacate the trial dates to continue to vacate the other dates, discovery, motions, summary judgment, dispositive, non-dispositive motions, continuing to say, well, those dates will be connected with the new trial dates and, and are vacated. So it's continuing to be done. Have there been ongoing discussions with courts about the possible alternatives to this? Uh, 
Yes. Um, and overall, they are not very receptive. Um, it's, it is really challenging. And, um, you know, the, the other piece of this, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Yes, in the beginning, no one, none of us knew how to respond um, or, or what to do. But we have had several months now and we frankly should just be in a different, more prepared uh, position than than we are. It, it is. It was striking to me that the courts did not have some sort of plan for something like this. A lot of uh, different um, agencies in the other two branches have uh, emergency plans. Remote operation plans. I mean, we, we are living in an age that um, these kinds of pandemics can occur. Of course, we didn't think it would happen like this um, to such a wide extent. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure it felt like just this big tidal wave. Uh, and, and we've seen the cascade effect uh, and the damage done. But there, there should have been better planning. You know, that's easy to say. It's Monday morning quarterbacking for sure. But we're here now, and I don't think we're implementing as a, a legal community the lessons that we've learned. And I'm very concerned that an entire branch of government feels like it's uh, crashing down around us because it can't adapt and it's not moving in one direction. And they're not speaking with one voice. There have been some uh, adaptations, for example, in, in dealing with uh, uh, motions, some motions now in which judges have to rule. There has been an increased use of both telephonic and video technology in many, in some of the courts, hasn't there been? So that at least some of the non-dispositive issues can move forward. There's been some advance on that, I think. Yeah, again, it depends on, um, it depends on the county. Uh, you know, I know, for example, Yolo County, which is a, you know, smaller to medium county, uh, was up and running on video conference almost right away. Now they have fewer courtrooms and fewer judges. Um, but there, there were early adapters and there are, you know, courts and even departments that didn't miss a beat. I mean, some of this is, the individual judges taking it upon themselves. I'll tell you, uh, about six weeks ago, I got uh, an email from a Gmail account from a judge who had just figured out how to send an email herself, not using, I guess she couldn't access um, her judicial email, and she wanted to issue a CMC order. I mean, there are, I think kind of the takeaway is where there's a will, there's a way. Um, you know, the other wrinkle to this is um, there are uh, union contracts in place that are different in different counties. And so that is going to come into the mix in terms of how the courts function, what the rights are of the, the court workers, um, hours that can be worked, whether or not the contract even allows them to work remotely. Um, so there's, there's, there are a lot of moving parts. Um, you know, there's no denying that, but um, there really is no reason at this point why 
folks can't file stuff and hearings can't be heard in a timely fashion. I'll tell you, I've had personal experience where the, you know, um, link has been sent and we've appeared uh, via video conference and the judge has said, I never got anyone's papers. So this is kind of what I think about, you know, what's going on from my memory on this case, but we're going to have to reset uh, the hearing. But of course, also, we, we're talking about the civil justice, which we're focusing on. The courts uh, have to deal with a broader range of issues, which they constantly talk about. They've got huge responsibilities in criminal procedure, which have constitutional requirements that the civil doesn't have. They've got huge responsibilities in, in the family matters, independency matters, uh, things that get priorities. And so one of the things that constantly, and I think it's fair to say, the courts have to manage more than the issues of, of civil justice. Uh, and they are, are they moving in, in those other areas? I know some criminal trials are being held, and there are some procedures for emergency uh, appearances and emergency actions where restraining orders are necessary. So there are some other things happening in these other areas that the courts are trying to deal with. Uh, in addition to the civil justice issues. Right. And and let's not forget unlawful detainers. I mean, even though there was emergency legislation passed about, you know, evictions during this period of time, we have to be concerned about folks being unhoused during this pandemic. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. There are there is a lot at stake and a lot of things that need to be balanced. Um but we we can't just because it's a lot um, kind of shut down and kick the can down the road. Uh, yes, the constitutional requirements for for criminal court are very very important, as are um, you know preference statutory preference cases. I mean, what are we doing about the the plaintiffs who are dying? They're they're not going to make it to twenty twenty one. Yeah. Um, so. We've, we've just got to have a more holistic uh, approach. And we don't want to leave, um, you know, everything other than criminal uh, out of the, the picture. I think one way to, to state the dramatic importance of this, I don't think it's unfair to say that in major counties, there may not be another civil jury trial in California until 2021. Or if there is one, there might be many more than one. Well, yeah, I mean, and and not not very many have have happened in kind of the the window that we had where things were opening up, but they did happen. And you know, I'll, I'll tell you anecdotally. So again, Yolo County comes to mind. There was a, a jury trial there, and um, a very well-known jury consultant was involved. And the reports that I got back about jurors' attitudes were really interesting. One juror said they were distracted because of what was going on in their own lives, but they came, uh, showed up, you know, did their service, and um, none of them reduced damages because of what was going on. Well, one of the issues, so I want to talk about I think we have to talk about long range. What are the various things that should be focused on? But certainly one of the things that people are aware of is this whole uh, episode is going to impact 
uh, certainly in the short term, when things start to open up, and perhaps even in the long term, uh, the ability to uh, uh, to get jurors. Uh, jurors are going to be very, uh, many, many people are going to be very reluctant to show up. You know, L.A. County, uh, you know, sends out about 1.8 million juror summonses a year. About 50 percent of those are not not responded to. Uh, jurors need jurors priority for criminal cases. But people are going to be, aren't they, very reluctant to show up to be jurors. Certainly the jury rooms will have to be redesigned so people aren't packed together. Uh, the number of people in the courtroom and where the jury sits will have to be uh, redesigned and are being redesigned in many cases. So there is a very practical impact that among the things that have to be dealt with is how do we, how is this made comfortable for jurors to participate so that we can have jury trials? Exactly. I'm, I've heard from different counties that um, the response rate for the summons are in the teens. So, you know, pe- people are not, not like they were ever jumping at the opportunity, but it, it, it's, it's not the same uh, level of, of responsiveness. Um, I know that the Judicial Council put together a very thoughtful plan for, um, you know, how to configure courtrooms and be socially distant. Um, you know, I, again, it's it, it's going to depend on the county. There are some older courthouses that, you know, I don't know how without a lot of construction. Um, and let's not forget the court's budgets were slashed significantly. So I don't know where the funds are going to come from <laughs> to do construction. But if you can't uh, move the chairs in the box because they're, you know, bolted down, h- how do you how do you have room? Um, you know, how do you make room? And then the other piece of it is, from the lawyer's perspective, how do you pick, how do you voir dire when everyone has a mask on? You can't see facial expressions. There's just so much in the body language that's lost. Um, other states have done um, some Zoom or, you know, video conferencing trials. Um, but how, how do you ensure that the jurors are paying attention or, um, you know, really with you? It's, there's so much energy that goes into trying a case and feedback from body language and, you know, reaction. And you can really tell impact on a jury based on, you know, body language and, and whatever else during testimony. And if they're sitting in, you know, their homes on a laptop, how are you going to have any ability to assess what's going on? But also, you know, from a practical that? trial lawyer standpoint, uh, even aside from the policy considerations, I think one of the effects of this is going to be to change the makeup, the demographic makeup of the jury pool. Older jurors have been so much a part traditionally of the jury pool and I think we're likely to find over time that potential older jurors are simply not showing up. Uh, over 65 will basically be, be exempt. Uh, people who are older and consider themselves in risk for everyone now super sensitive uh, to, uh, to health concerns. And of course, as you know, there are elaborate studies of how different generations react in the courtroom, difference between millennials and the Generation Z and uh, and and uh, and older jurors, 
And so I think a practical effect of this for trial lawyers, which is very interesting for trial lawyers to think about, is I think there will be a demographically, materially demographically different jury pool uh, to, to appeal to than there was before this occurred. I, I, don't see how, I don't see how that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And let's think about the uh, astounding rates of unemployment. So our folks who are frontline workers and, you know, they're losing them in, in terms of participation. How is that going to change um, the composition of the jury? Yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're risking the ability to truly have a jury of one's peers. So let's talk about, and here I think, let's talk about what the solutions are. Without talking, without focusing on the difficulty of achieving them for the moment, because that becomes an exercise in implementation, in politics, in a whole bunch of other things. But let's start that we had a, what anyone will call a real crisis in, in, in the justice system. This is not just a minor thing. This is a crisis to the idea of justice if availability mm-hmm. of courts is restricted the way it has been. So what are the steps that we need to take? I take it the first one you're talking about is somehow developing statewide coordination or statewide similarities over the procedures that county trial, that independent trial courts use. Is that essential to dealing to dealing with this? Is is that where we have to start? It is. It is. We're never. It's going to be you know one step forward, two steps back. If um, you know. Yuba County is pulling one direction and Shasta is going the other. We have to be lockstep. We can't have different systems or access to justice depending on, you know, what your zip code is. So that's the first step that has to be taken. So then let's talk about what the the system of the future may be. How much will we permanently or at least over the intermediate short term to intermediate how much will we have changed the system now to move more and more to online, whether it's video or telephonic, to online presentations, excluding criminal matters, uh, for the moment excluding juries, and for the moment excluding where witness credibility is at issue? Will we be going to a time where all the matters that can be decided as a judicial matter without those issues, without the criminal or requiring a jury or witness credibility, that basically most, if not all, of those will now be handled uh, uh, online virtually? I think so. Um, I think there should, when uh, when we are able to, there should be the ability to appear in person. There's nothing like arguing a summary judgment in front of the judge (laughs) rather than on the phone. Everybody knows that's a no-no. A CMC is one thing, but MSJ, forget it. you got to be there. But I think that, um, listen, there's a lot in terms of technology uh, that we have gained um, during this horrific period of time. And I'm not trying to be Pollyanna, but we as a legal community and the, the lawyers have figured out how to turn on a dime because we had to. Um, so I, I think that there's a lot that works about remote appearances. There's a lot that works about 
remote depositions. We, we, you know, need to strive for um, getting back to when we can be in person. There are certain depositions that people are not taking right now because they need to be in the room with that person. Um, but technology has provided a lot of advantages to the practice of law. It always blew my mind. It was us and the real estate agents who still used fax machines, and that's yeah. about it. Yes. I mean, <laughs> we are just still, um, there are so many arcane uh, kind of holdovers that, that just don't serve a purpose anymore. We should be streamlining. I, I was thrilled when we moved to mandatory e-filing in a lot of counties, but there are still counties that don't have online access to, to dockets. And we, if nothing else, this has proven that we need to be able to practice law remotely. Hopefully but, it's not the, the end of it and we'll get back to being in person, but um, we've got to be able to do it when things like this happen. But except for some critical appearances, I mean, you mentioned the motion for summary judgment, though even there, the U.S. Supreme Court can hold telephonic arguments, I guess, that may uh, indicate <laughs> to others what can be done. But aside from that, we've all had, every trial lawyer has had the experience of, uh, you know, spending an hour driving to court and sitting in a courtroom uh, waiting for a case management conference that may take 10 or 15 minutes uh, to take place and then turning around and driving back and having spent time in traffic and two and three hours to the extent a great deal of appearances that that were more ministerial than adjudicative took place in the courtroom uh, to the extent technology makes those available online uh, and this has pushed that, that's going to be a net plus for the system, I think. Absolutely. It will make things less expensive, less time-consuming, um, and it's, you know, very frustrating when lawyers are kind of uh, cooling their jets, waiting for, I mean, my goodness, a 15-minute CMC is, is extraordinary. They're usually about two minutes. Yeah. So <laughs> you certainly feel like this uh, this could have, you know, this could have been an email, frankly. Yeah. yeah. No, we've all had that experience. We've all sat in the courtrooms for an hour or two waiting our turn and then being up for a few minutes. So there's some things we've learned here. But let's talk about the really big issues. Uh, I, I don't mean that the others aren't, but the one that, that really comes to mind as one that we're going to have to really think about how to solve is how do we deal with the jury trial issue, with the civil jury trial issue, will there be a movement to doing things remotely, even in jury trials? Or let's do it separately. How do we deal with the witness credibility issue? Do witnesses have to appear in court or could credibility be determined by some witnesses uh, coming online, a combination, a hybrid trial? Uh, after all, we now do a lot of depositions that we anticipate will be testimonial depositions, where it is the deposition that is shown as the, as the testimony. So will we have to adapt in our civil trial procedures, either the witnesses or jurors, with how we move forward, uh, uh, given uh, what is happening and what is likely to happen? 
I, I think so. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, there are always at this point in our practices, a number of witnesses that, you know, we took the depot as a trial preservation deposition and we always intended to, to play the video. And frankly, jurors expect to see video. They're, we're all so used to screen time now. Um, there, there are a lot of witnesses that can be presented, um, by video. I think there will always, um, be some witnesses that you're going to need to have in person. Um, to my mind, though, what's more important than the witnesses, particularly if there's not a credibility issue, is having the jurors present with the lawyers. They're the triers of fact. They're the ones making the decisions. So um, we we need to kind of have our finger on the pulse of, of what's going on with them. And I do think, particularly in newer courthouses, that we can have uh, the entire panel in a, you know, with enough distance um, uh, to, to be safe. One of the issues is, of course, you know, people being inside and the transmission um, likelihood, you know, goes up when you're inside without fresh air. So there are still health issues that we we need to be mindful of. But I I think we can get to that point. And um, I think as we start to get back to jury trials, we'll learn a lot more. I mean, this is We've never been here before. And, you know, you, you reference 9-11 and that was an example, but this is so different and so more, um, so much more impactful in a negative way on our entire system of justice. Nobody knows the right answers. It doesn't mean we stop striving to find them. Um, but, but I think we will learn a lot more through trial and error. One of the things that has, has just begun to be talked about uh, given all the issues you've talked about and we've mentioned, really has to do with the use of real estate in the in the justice system. Uh, there will be redesigned uh, courthouses, redesigned courtrooms uh, to deal with this. Uh, people are also talking about the movement away from everyone showing up every day of the work week, whether it's five, six, or seven days in a law offices, that there will be a huge market for what amount to redesigned offices and homes where there are large TV screens and essentially our, our, virtu- our rooms for virtual appearances and virtual arguments. Because as we move to more and more online virtual legal processes, uh, the real estate will be designed uh, to do that. We still have a large amount of funds and construction budgets to build courthouses but I think, uh, and I don't know if this has been discussed at uh, CAOC, uh, but there are issues being raised about now how courthouses should be designed uh, when, uh, you know, so much that used to be done only in the courtrooms will now be done virtually. And over time, and pretty soon, I think, uh, we're going to have to deal with those issues. Though, as you say, let's talk for a moment and and. The budgetary impacts, we're not just talking about COVID-19, but there's a huge issue in terms of the court functioning of the budgetary impacts of this uh, current budget, isn't there, just in terms of overall court functioning? Absolutely. And um, we understand that I think all counties are going to have a couple of furlough days a month 
um, and they're already not functioning at 100%. So, you know, we we will experience more delays. And um, the, the one kind of positive or the, 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 the one glimmer of hope is the um, $50 million one-time uh, line item for technology, improving technology. So hopefully that money can go into all of the counties and be spread around and help um, you know, get things up and functioning where they're not um, a little bit more. But yeah, I, I don't, you know, we are expecting the courts to do more with less. And, you know, there are some inefficiencies. I've heard time and time again from judges, you know, we as lawyers don't understand that for every order, uh, there's 10 different clerks who have a, a step that they have to fulfill in the process or, um, you know, even to get the, the pleadings to the courtroom. There are all these different steps and all of these different people necessary to make that happen. So um, we're just going to have to figure out a better way yeah. and well, one of the do things, more with less. One of the things that may happen, I think, is that as, as there's generational change, as the generations that are uncomfortable with technology, whether on the bench or in law practice, are succeeded by generations that have grown up with technology, uh, that a lot of change happens from the bottom up. And I think uh, that the familiarity of, of younger generations with, with technology use, as they are with appointments to the court, with moving into management positions in law firms, that that's going to really have a dramatic effect on how the courts adapt because, you know, we are still with leadership levels with some generations that simply find the technology uncomfortable. Uh, but there are, soon there will be no generation that finds the technology uncomfortable. And uh, I think that may have a very uh, positive effect uh, in terms of, of the ability of courts and the legal system to make changes, uh, to make changes quickly. Um, but you are going to be at the center of this. You're at the center of this now, Micah. You're going to be at the center of this for some time, even after your term as president. If CAOC is o over, you have become one of the people uh, dealing with and that will be core uh, to, to resolving these issues. And I think that the whole legal profession and the justice system uh, is really uh, in your debt for your ability to deal with this and to move constructively. We're very grateful that you've been willing to spend the hour with us. Uh, before we end, I do want to say to those listening that if you'd like a one-hour MCLA credit for this podcast, if you simply go to the website dailyjournal.com, which is outside the paywall, you don't have to be a subscriber, you will see a link both to the podcast, uh, which is available on iTunes as well, and you will also see a link to an MCLE test, which you can fill out uh, electronically uh, and send in. And you may receive one hour credit for having listened to this podcast and filling out the, the, the forms and tests. Also, if you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, you should know that there is a treasure trove of materials on these issues. Micah has been the author of some articles that have appeared in the Daily Journal. Others have as well. A large amount has been written. They are extremely valuable. They're on the Daily Journal website. They can be searched. 
They can be kept in bookmarks for future reference. That is available to, to subscribers, and if you are a subscriber, you can again do that uh, on the dailyjournal.com website and then simply sign in. If you're not a subscriber on the dailyjournal.com website, you will see one of the, the blue buttons that sticks out that says subscribe that you can click and become a subscriber and have access to what Micah has written in the Daily Journal, to what others have, and to what I think is fairly described as that whole treasure trove of information on this and other subjects. But for now, Micah, we thank you so much for joining us. This has been extremely enlightening. I think we've talked about these issues. We'll be dealing with them for some time. But as I said, we're very grateful to you for your willingness to take this hour to share your thoughts on them. Thank you so much, Micah. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about a passionate way to continue to have access to justice.